Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 22. Be wrapping up the series next week. But this is um, another interesting passage, a challenging passage where, uh, you know, we feel like maybe chapter 12 ended on this high note and then we enter chapter 13 and there's this need for reform again on all the things that they had made commitments to prior. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But I wanted us to reflect upon a little bit of a contemporary situation that's similar. Since 1937, Gallup has tracked the decline in church membership in America. Uh, 2020 marked the first year that membership dropped below 50%. Now, this trend applies across every demographic and subgroup of America. So we can't just point our finger at one particular generation or one particular denomination. Um, We are simply becoming less and less religious as a nation across the board. Now, surely the decline in church membership is the product of a decline in church attendance. Um, Only 22% of Americans say they attend church every week, and another 9% say they attend almost every week. Our commitment to weekly church attendance reflects our willingness to prioritize what God prioritizes. Again, every time I say something like that, I I have to give a caveat. If you're sick, we understand. There's exceptions, right? And we'll talk about further exceptions as well in this sermon. But the idea of a a weekly commitment to attending worship is on a pretty dramatic decline in our nation. And to the degree that we justify working or treating Sunday like any other day of the week is the degree to which we have become conformed to the patterns of this world. To suggest that there are really 365 holy days, that God has made all of the days the same, that every that every day should be treated as the Lord's day, ultimately suggests that none of them are holy, that none are set apart to be distinct. This morning's passage is a call to restore a right observance of a day that God has set apart from creation. And so, yes, there are some differences in when that day is celebrated and how it is set apart from, uh, or how it is to be observed under the new covenant, But I hope to provide a a bit more clarity this morning just about its ongoing relevance for us today. Before we get into that, I do want to be clear. The Christian Sabbath is a secondary matter that should not disrupt fellowship. We can take a, a firm stance on what this day represents and still allow room for disagreement about particulars. In fact, if you look at our Christian, you know, our Reformed standards, there are differences among the Second Helvetic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Catechisms. They all have different interpretations, or at least different particular elements in how the Sabbath is to be observed and and represented. But none of that implies that we should just ignore the issue. Well, since there's been confusion about it, we, we don't really need to worry about it. And it's a subject of tremendous importance to God. Sabbath is mentioned at least 159 in at least 159 verses. 
in the Old Testament. Some of those verses it's mentioned multiple times. Uh, Dr. John Gerstner would simply read, he was a seminary professor, would simply read all of those verses out loud to his students so that none of them would think this is just a light matter. Uh, this is just something that, you know, that we'll figure out at another time. He wanted them to study it and wrestle with it. And so in this passage, the Israelites, they exhibit a readiness to desecrate, to profane what God had made holy, namely the Sabbath day. And unfortunately, I think the modern church falls into the same worldly patterns where we have a tendency to compromise rest and worship on the Lord's day for personal and selfish gain. Rightly understood, however, the Sabbath observance serves to sustain our faith and to restore our joy in worship. And that's really what I, I hope we'll, we'll reflect upon mostly in this sermon this morning, is that it's, it's a commandment that brings tremendous joy to the believer. All right, so let me ask the Lord for his help in understanding it before we read our passage. Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again to sit under your word. And in sitting under it, it implies that we are respecting its authority, that we respect what you are about to teach us. And so we need to come with the right posture. We need to come with humility. We need to come recognizing that our hearts might be changed. We might be convicted, Lord, and, and we ought to be if we're out of accord with your will. But Lord, we ultimately want to glorify you. You made us for your glory. And Lord, we know that we find great satisfaction and joy as we live according to your purpose for us. So Lord, do a work in our hearts this morning. Bring conviction where it needs to be brought, and Lord, bring comfort as well from the truth of our Lord and Savior's death on our behalf. Lord, in the way, all the many ways in which we have forsaken, the ways that we just sung about, our, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we know that we have an older brother who rescued us, who sought us, and who took our punishment and our penalty and our place, that we might come to you as children to a father, adopted into the same family. And so, Lord, we want to reflect upon these things as your children. And we want to receive your discipline in, as children from a loving father who disciplines us for our good. And Lord, we want to rejoice in the fact that we belong to you and that nothing can remove us from your grasp. It's in your precious son's name we ask it. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 through 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. In Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on, God, on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark, 
at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath days. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we see there this response from Nehemiah. If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That's not, that's not a promise that I'll ordain you, right? Uh, that was a threat. And their response makes it clear. It's almost humorous. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. All right, so, so Derek Thomas starts off. Our first point, if you're following along in the outline, um, first point is this, how to observe a holy day. I want to begin by just giving you the basic, um, the basic instruction of the Sabbath observance, the fourth commandment. And then we'll get into the text and we'll, we'll, we'll do some uh, comparisons with parallel passages as well in the prophets. But Derek Thomas in his commentary on this passage said this, our view of the Sabbath, even the Old Testament Sabbath, is often so negative that we can see no reason for these draconian threats from Nehemiah. Why is he so worked up about this? We don't get it. And it's probably because we have such a negative view of the Sabbath. We think it's just legalistic. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, on the seventh day, God rested from his creative work the previous six days. As a creation ordinance, the Sabbath is on par with work and marriage. There's not, this is not merely a command that was given to a single nation or only to be observed during a particular era in church history. They were pre-fall commandments, universally and perpetually binding upon humanity. You cannot remove the Sabbath and the principles of the Sabbath any more than you can get rid of work or marriage. We hold it to the same standard. So this instruction was passed on and it was practiced by the patriarchs so that Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices at the end of the week on the seventh day. That meant that the seventh day, the Sabbath, had a particular significance for worship on that day. It doesn't mean that they didn't worship the other six days, but they specifically reserved their sacrificial offerings for the end of the week, for the seventh day. And so the Sabbath was explicitly mentioned in Exodus 16, and it reflected, it's reflected in the details regarding the collection of manna. In, in that chapter, it talks about how God provides for them bread from heaven, and they take that, that manna, and, and in, in the way they were collecting it, God instructs them not to do so on the Sabbath, right? to refrain from going out and collecting. They were to collect double the day before so that they could then store it up. And, and God says, it'll, it'll last you into the Sabbath. You have to just trust him. 
And so he tr- they, they were to, to trust him in that. And he says this in that passage. When the, so the Israelites, they end up rebelling against the Lord. They, they don't trust, right? So they see the, the bread on the ground on the Sabbath, and they all go out and begin collecting it. And the, the response from God is this in Exodus 16, 28. How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Now, that was Exodus 16. Where do we see the Ten Commandments? Where do we get the Fourth Commandment where it's explicit not to work on the Sabbath day? Exodus 20. So this is prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, prior to the explicit instruction to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. God tells them, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? In other words, they they have had repeated failures of Sabbath breaking before the Sabbath commandment was even given, which implies that, that it was given in creation, that they had been practicing this or they were supposed to be practicing this up to this point, but they failed repeatedly. So the Sabbath is not complicated, but we oftentimes do make it confusing. And I think sometimes that's in order to minimize it. Sometimes it's just to give us an excuse to not to not observe it, right? It, in effect, the same thing. So consider the simplicity of the commandment. Uh, if you want to turn with me there, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. We are going to jump around a little bit, but we'll come back to Nehemiah. But Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is the fourth commandment. Remember, this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so we see there much that we could focus on about the you know, uh, command there. And I did a four, four sermons on this when we talked through the, the series of, on the Ten Commandments in uh, 2020. So I don't have time to get into all that we covered there. But the fourth commandment contains four general principles. Two are positive and two are negative. The first is remember the Sabbath day. That implies prior knowledge. To remember something means that you have prior knowledge. It means not forgetting. It means observing and celebrating. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Holy means to set it apart. It's not a common day. When the Lord declares something to be holy, who are we to make it common? Then there's two negative. Do not do any work. And that's not inactivity. It's not as if, we, like, the, the holiest way to spend the day is to just sleep and, and try not to move a finger. That's not the point. The point is that God rested from his creative activity. He rested from the work of creation. So we should be resting from our regular worldly employments. And then lastly, don't employ others. I know this one's tricky and difficult because we want to say, look, if I, I can't. I can't force my convictions upon my neighbor. 
Well, what happens here? Or the sojourner who is within your gates. So, the command to Israel, you're within your community. If you have a sojourner coming in, are they supposed to work? No. Anyone that you come into contact with that day should not be working. So how can you force someone to work or pay someone to perform a task that would be a sin for you to perform? Even the sojourner was instructed to refrain from work. And we saw that. We see that. We'll, we'll cover that explicitly as well in Nehemiah 13, talking about the Tyrians who were uh, setting up the marketplace. So again, we don't have time to get into all the, the technical aspects of the moral, civil, ceremonial divisions of the law. I think that does come into play in, in some of the differences that we have under the new covenant. And again, I'll point you just to the previous sermon series if you're interested. Um, but to suffi suffice it to say, these Sabbath principles, these basic four principles of the Sabbath commandment are still very relevant to us today. And we would do well to recover them in our own practice. Our attitude toward the fourth commandment may reveal, in fact, the, the state of our, our hearts. How do, you, how do you fight formalism in worship? Formalism, just going through the motions, right? Uh, sort of a disconnected, disengaged worship. How do you fight that? Well, you structure your day around worship. It, it, you prepare your heart for worship. You anticipate to delight in singing, praying, sitting under the preaching of God's word, celebrating the Lord's Supper, enjoying the fellowship of the saints, both in the worship service, after the worship service, joining together for meals. Um, when it's not a delight, when, it, when you feel like it's a burden, you don't refrain from participating altogether. All right, if, you're, if your kid says, I don't want to go to church today, I'm tired. I'm going to stay in bed. We tell them to repent. <laughs> repent of their attitude. And we should exhibit our own repentance. Because sometimes we come with a bad attitude. And we need to say we're sorry. Because we want to have a more God-honoring posture when we come to worship. And really when we celebrate this day. Otherwise, we quickly slide into worldly attitudes about the Lord's Day. And so the second point is how to profane a holy day. First point is how to observe a holy day. It's those simple four principles that we reflected upon. Secondly, it's how to profane a holy day. That's what we see in Nehemiah. So you can turn back to that passage in Nehemiah 13. One of the primary reasons that Israel was sent into exile was due to their idolatry and their Sabbath breaking. That's clear in the prophets. It's, it's clear in the historical narrative passages as well. One of Ezekiel's most powerful visions is of the glory of the Lord departing from the Holy of Holies. And then, and then it departs past the threshold and the, the cherubim of the temp, uh, in the temple. It goes outside the temple altogether and even outside of the city and it just continues to depart. And it's a picture of the Lord departing, right? Removing his presence because of their repeated rebellion against him. And then it explicitly says in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 12 through 13, that, he, that rebellion was, it's described as profaning the day that God had sanctified. And the 
spirit of the Lord was departing because they had repeatedly profaned the day that God had sanctified. That's Ezekiel chapter 20. Now, Nehemiah is recorded later than that. And after several waves of exiles had returned to Jerusalem, right, many had, had returned, but the city and its walls were still broken down. We talked about that in the first half of the book, how Nehemiah led the people in rebuilding the walls, and then, and then in the latter portion, he begins to establish their obedience to the law. And, and there's this deep moral and spiritual crisis that existed even after they return from exile. In obedience, they come back to the promised land, they come back to the city, and yet they're still reluctant to apply everything that they knew they needed to apply from God's law. And so they listen, they, they, they set Ezra up, and they, they have him read from the book of the law for four to five hours on a particular day. They spend the better part of the day just listening, and, and, the, and the language sounds like they're standing the entire time, just listening to the word of God read. And as Ezra reads from the book, the people weep over their sin. They weep over their rebellion and how they have neglected God's word. And go, go back to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 14, we see explicitly what they're, what they're weeping over. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by, by Moses, your servant. They're reflecting upon the history of Israel. They're recognizing the commandment to observe the Sabbath. And then go to chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. The rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So when we get to Nehemiah 13, it's obvious that they have neglected to keep their own vow, their own promise. How do the people break the Sabbath? Well, we see in verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on the donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. In other words, they treated it like every other day. They kept working. They just worked right on through. They sold, verse 15. They bought, verse 16 and 20. It talks about uh, these Phoenician merchants from Tyre, Tyrians, that had apparently established a colony within Jerusalem. These, these were known as uh, merchants who went around and established colonies in various towns throughout that region. And so there was a group of them in Israel. What were they doing? They were working. They were... They were in the marketplace, they were buying and selling. 
And so the Israelites had fallen into the exact same sins that sent them into exile to begin with. Now, remember in the previous passage, we considered how the grain offerings for the Levites were no longer being collected. And Nehemiah had to reestablish that pattern and practice of collecting grain offerings for the Levites. But we see here, they were loading up heaps of grain. It wasn't as if they had run out of grain. They had plenty, but they were using it to sell in the marketplace for their own selfish gain. Every example of how the Jews were profaning the Sabbath were explicitly forbidden in the law. We won't go through each section, but uh, throughout Exodus, right, they violated the fourth commandment by working. We looked at Exodus 20.10. They worked during the harvest, right? They probably made the, this is the harvest. It's especially important that I work on the, on the Sabbath day. No, they were explicitly forbidden from working on the har- during the harvest, Exodus 34.21. They loaded grain on their donkeys instead of giving them rest, Exodus 23, verse 12. Now, in the New Testament, you get Jewish tradition that takes passages like this and then elaborates with additional rules to be followed when observing the Sabbath. For instance, since the law forbid plowing a field on the Sabbath, the Pharisees go so far as forbidding combing one's hair on the Sabbath. And it just sounds ridiculous. And I know you can point to Puritans who sound ridiculous in the way they want to apply the stipulations of Sabbath observance, but that does not remove the fact that it's a simple command to stop doing whatever you want to do on that day and honor the Lord your God who set it apart. So I do think sometimes we focus so much on what we can't do. And we, and, and we feel it just a, a, a heavy burden. And we say, it's just too much. I, I, just, I, I guess I'm not a Sabbatarian. I guess I won't honor the Sabbath. I, I believe differently. And so we, we make an excuse for doing whatever we want. Here in the, in the New Testament, you have the Pharisees actually holding people accountable for obedience to their tradition. Right, they were accusing people. They, they accused Jesus on several occasions of breaking Sabbath commandments. And in every, every accusation they make of Jesus, it's a, it's a tradition and not an explicit command from Scripture. They accuse him of working because the people plucked, and because he and the disciples plucked pieces of grain. And they would say that he's harvesting. He's harvesting grain here. And then he was threshing it because he, you know, rubbed it in his fingers there, and then ate the kernel. And they would say, you were working, and you were instructing your disciples to work as well. And how did he respond to that? He said, remember how David went into the temple and ate the showbread when his men were hungry. What does he say there? He says, the Sabbath was made for man. It's, it's, far more, it's, a, it's a, a work of necessity to enjoy a, a meal, to eat, right? You, you cannot tell people they, they have to refrain from eating that day. Now, it's not as if they were going into the marketplace and buying their meal. No, they were just taking advantage of the gleaning laws that are, that are in the Old Testament, that they could, that, that a, a farmer had to leave the edges of their field to be gleaned by the poor. And so Jesus and his disciples are taking advantage of that law, and they're gleaning and enjoying a meal 
on the Sabbath day. In other situations, he heals. Most, I don't know if it's most, but many of the examples of Jesus' healings in the Gospels happen on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees did not like that. And every time, it seems like, they, they confront him on it. In the case of the lame man uh, who Jesus healed, who, who was just outside of the temple, everyone knew who this person was. He heals the man, and he says, take up your mat and go home. And, and they said, well, maybe you shouldn't have, have healed him, but really the problem is you told him to pick up his mat. You told him to move on the Sabbath. Right? So, so they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath by instructing someone else to pick up an empty mat. It was okay if, if he was still on the mat for someone to move him, you know, take him from his location to somewhere else. But because that mat was empty, now you're telling him to, to move his, his home, which is, again, absurd. And so Jesus corrects them for their faulty application of the Sabbath commandments. And then, of course, you have examples of people serving. For instance, my, my busiest day of the week is Sunday. Right? I, I preach, and I'm, we're, we're working. We're here early. We're staying late. It's a busy day. Anyone who's here helping uh, set up, anyone who's out doing security for us, this, these are all acts of piety. They're works of piety that support worship they facilitate worship and so they're not these are these you might say are exceptions to the command if you're facilitating worship if you're doing works of necessity or if you're doing works of mercy those are examples of of honoring the day right of honoring god and the day that he has set apart but oftentimes what we do is we take those exceptions and then we go well you know it, it's kind of necessary that i go to applebee's today I'm hungry. It's kind of necessary that I spend the rest of my evening watching NFL or whatever, right? We, we have all these examples, and I don't want to get into saying what you should and shouldn't do, but I just want to say that just because these exceptions are, are, are a, little, they're a little fuzzy on the edges, it's not clear exactly how to define a work of necessity or a work of mercy or a work of piety, and if you want to get into the technical details, you're going to find somewhere where you're going... I'm not really sure that's what God meant by honoring that day, remembering it, and keeping it holy. And so the, the point here is, is that the Lord's day is a privilege to enjoy. It's not a burden to bear. These exceptions, they, they focus on what we should be doing on the Lord's day, not what we can't do. And that should be where our hearts are. And so the, this leads us to this last part, the importance of reforming our practice how to reform a holy day, verses 19 through 22. Nehemiah's response is to shut the gates on Friday evenings and then in order to prevent commerce altogether on Saturday. We won't, we won't get into the idea, well, I'll just say very briefly because it always comes up, but the Sabbath in the Old Covenant was Saturday. We would say the Lord's Day is Sunday, and this is because the New Testament has a tradition of celebrating and honoring the Day of Resurrection. Right? That doesn't mean that we have... Uh, that we don't have any parallels between the fourth commandment and the Lord's Day. We would say this is the Christian Sabbath because of what Christ has done. And so that's, that's a, a technical detail just to, we can get into that later. But Nehemiah's response was to shut the gates on Friday evenings in order to prevent commerce altogether on Saturday. You see that in verse 19. Some of the merchant colony that I already spent, these Tyrians, they decided to lodge just outside of the, the gate just on the other side. 
And maybe they're thinking, look, Exodus 20 said those sojourners who are within your gate. So huh, I'll just lodge right outside the gate and I'll be right there. That'll be obedient. So we don't know what their heart is. Maybe they were hoping to conduct business there. Maybe they were setting up the tables outside and they were hoping that someone would, you know, it's, it's apparent that people could still get in and out um, or you would think they could, um, but they just couldn't be bringing in loading. They couldn't be setting up. So maybe they were hoping that people would, would get out and, and, and still buy just outside the gate. Maybe they thought that those who were traveling in thinking, hey, I've always shopped on Sunday or Saturday. I've always done this. And so they traveled in and they see the gates are shut. Well, hey, we'll set up for them and we'll sell to the traveler, those who are traveling in. That's a possibility. Um, maybe they were just lodging there because it doesn't say they actually set up their marketplace, right? It just says that they were lodging outside the camp. So maybe they were just wanting to get prime location. It's like, you know, you've got Good Friday sales coming up. And so you want to be in that spot. You, you camp out right in front of the store. So this is the, the idea. They're, they're camping out there right before the, uh, during the Sabbath so that when the market, when the gates open back up, they can be in prime spot on Sunday. We don't know exactly. But Amos rebuked Israel for outwardly observing the Sabbath, but inwardly longing for it to end. Right? They, they, they were not selling, but in their hearts they were saying, oh, we can't wait to get back to selling, and to buying and selling and, and just doing what we want instead of doing what the Lord wants. All right, that's Amos 8.5. And in my own translation. Now, either these merchants were outwardly rebelling against the law or they were inwardly rebellious, but either way, they were not submitting to God. And here's the point. The fourth commandment was applicable to Gentile merchants, even when Israel was a vassal state under Persian rule. So a lot of people say, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a particular people during a particular time. That's, that's what's important to, to consider. We're, we're not in their situation anymore. Well, we're in a situation very similar to what they were in Nehemiah. Uh, we have foreign rule. We don't, we're, we're not under, uh, we're not in a theocracy. And we don't, we submit to leaders who, not, who are not Christian. And that doesn't mean that, that the fourth commandment doesn't matter or doesn't apply to us. Furthermore, Nehemiah ensured obedience to Sabbath observance by establishing Levite guards. Now, these are Levites who are serving in the temple. He established them, establishes them as guards of the city gates. In other words, Sabbath observance in the city was deeply connected to Sabbath worship. The Levites were the appropriate choice to symbolize the fact that the whole city was set apart the whole day for rest and worship. And I want to conclude just with this other passage, Isaiah 58, verses 13 through 14. Isaiah 58. Isaiah here clarifies the purpose of the commandment. He says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, so if you turn away from your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight 
and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, Isaiah's ministry occurred before exile. But his prophetic message paints a narrative of life before, during, and after exile. And this particular section reflects upon their return from exile. So the Sabbath was just as important after exile as it was before. That's obviously what what the people understood and knew when they made their commitment in Nehemiah 10. And so this is consistent here with what Ezekiel and Nehemiah say. But Isaiah lays out conditions for Sabbath observance. Negatively, he says, turn away from your pleasure and business on the Sabbath. He doesn't get into technical details of what, about what that looks like for each one of us. But he says, turn away from doing what you want to do and do what the Lord is asking. And so the positive command is to honor and revere the day. And the way he expresses that is he says, call the Sabbath a delight. We should be intentional about how we spend the Lord's day, but let us not forget the blessings that are attached to this commandment. The Puritans called the Lord's day the market day of the soul. It's, it's a wonderful phrase because it, it's like going to the store when you're hungry, right? And what, it, what does that mean? You end up seeing everything looks good. You just load it up. You, don't, you run out of room in your cart because it all looks great. What are the opportunities that are before you on the Lord's day to read his word, to meditate upon it, to lead your children in singing, uh, to, to, to play with them, to, uh, it, to take them uh, to the Lord in prayer, uh, to, to visit those who are sick, to take care of the widow, and to encourage the orphans to to spend time and fellowship with one another uh, to delight in in inviting your neighbor over for a meal and proclaiming the gospel boldly to them these are all means of grace that, that, that god might use you to establish this day as a pattern that is different from the rest that doesn't mean you can't do those things on the other days but it's a special day that god has set apart This is a particular day where you make that a priority over everything else. So Sunday should be like that for the believer. It's the most appropriate day of the week for saints to feed their souls upon Christ and his word throughout the day. Enjoy communion with God, not impatiently longing to be elsewhere. Enjoy Christ's victory over our enemies and praise God for his ongoing work in your life. Enjoy the benefits of your salvation in weekly Lord's Day worship and then celebrate the rest of the day in fellowship with Christ and his bride. Rightly understood, Sabbath observance serves to sustain our faith and to restore our joy in worship. And that means that it'll apply even when we're hot. (laughs) Right? And, and it's the hottest part of the year so far, and, and we've got an AC that should have been turned on a few hours earlier. Right? We, we learned this last year. We're learning now. But this, these are things that, that we put up with because we delight to be together. We delight to honor God. We delight to teach our children the importance 
And so during this time of cultural chaos and unrest, we ought to be delighted to find a commandment from God that has so much joy attached to observing it. Sabbath rest actually preserved Israelites from oppressive economic practices. It was greed that drove many to ignore the Sabbath. And when we forsake our own pleasures on the Sabbath, as Isaiah instructs, we find a superior pleasure satisfied in God. Now, Christ has perfectly fulfilled our Sabbath rest. Perfectly. And because of that fact, we now walk in obedience out of gratitude. Christ's fulfillment of the fourth commandment doesn't free us to profane it any more than his fulfillment of the other nine commandments frees us to break them. The gospel has not freed us to lie, steal, commit adultery, and murder. Neither has it freed us to profane the Lord's day. That pleasure is found, this pleasure that comes from serving and worshiping God on this day. It's found in our communion with him, and that will overflow onto our neighbors. So the Sabbath has a direct relationship to Christ's summary of the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. Observing this command involves a love that will not simply remain internal, but will extend into sacrificial service of others. And when we get to Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, he discusses Sabbath rest in Hebrews chapter 4, and he does so just before making an appeal to consider Christ as our high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. It's only because of the perfect work of our Savior that we can fumble our way through life, striving to enter into that rest, as he says in Hebrews 4.11, that he alone is able to provide. And so we go to Christ, and then we observe this day united to him, delighting in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. There's a lot to unpack when we consider this commandment and so much that we did not have time to consider this morning, but I pray that maybe something would stand out to us that would even transform the way we think about the Lord's day the way we celebrate this day, and the way we prioritize worship and rest. Lord, may we not become so focused on what we can't do, but delight in what we can. And Lord, may we never tire of doing so. It's, it's a taste of what eternity will be, where we truly won't be hindered by our sinful flesh or a fallen world will be able to perfectly honor you and always be at rest in your grace. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response. It's hymn number 243, How Firm a Foundation. Hymn number 243, we are going to skip verse 5.